Hey friends, welcome back to the Modern Medusa podcast. Thank you again for joining us for another week. I am your host, Dominique DeFalco of DeFalco Reptiles. This week, we're going to chat with one of my really good friends. She is not only a great keeper, but she's been a, a mentor and a good friend to me in the hobby for a while now. So we're going to talk with April Justine of Designer, oh my gosh, Designer Bloods. Bloods by Design. God fucking damn it. All right. This week, we're going to be, Yeah. This is why we edit. Okay. This week, we're going to be talking with April Justine of Bloods by Design with a little bit of her experience with blood pythons, a few other species she's kept, and then how she likes working with an animal that does have a tendency to have a not so great or more aggressive reputation behind it. So after that shit show of a, of a beginning, I'd like to introduce April to everyone. Hi, April. Hey there. That was really amusing. I loved it. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I, I don't, we'll figure out if I'm going to keep that in, but essentially April changed the name of her business in the last year. And apparently I forgot completely. <laughs> and I, I mean, like, I was with that other name for like six years, so I, I can understand. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't figure out. I was like, what is the name? And I had to pull up my Instagram and double check. Cause I was like, gonna fuck it up. I got even more Jeez. <laughs> I haven't even yeah, had so, anything to drink. <laughs> right. The backstory with that is I used to be in a partnership and mm-hmm. still good friends with him and everything, but we live across the United States now. So it's, it's silly for us to even try to build a true business that right. you have to actually, you know, tell the IRS about when we're in different States. It just didn't make sense anymore. So, yeah, so that's why, <laughs> that's why that happened. So what was the, uh, the beginning of that? So your first, uh, quote unquote reptile business was with a partner Were you guys living together and or living in the same area at that time. Yes. We were both in Southern California when hmm. we met each other and decided to do this. Okay. Um, and you know what, honestly though, it was really helpful having a partnership because I'm one of those people that gets so scared to do anything. So he was kind of there to be like, no, nah, we're doing this. We're good. Yeah. You know, he was like my raw, raw person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so that was good to have at the time. Um, cause I, I get like analysis paralysis and just don't want to do anything and get so scared. Yeah. So it was helpful at the time to have that. No, it's um, good that you but, guys both knew when it's time to grow. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we to be doing well too. Yeah. Yeah. It, it all worked out just fine. Like I said, we're still friends on good terms, so it's nothing crazy. You can't start any rumors about it. <laughs> I mean, you could. That's what this podcast true. is. This is the reptile gossip podcast. <laughs> just here to talk shit. Um, <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> oh my God. No, that would not be a good way for me to get my name in the hobby. That's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So April with Bloods by Design, if I got it right that time. Um, yes. You obviously are focused very much in blood pythons now, but I'd love to talk a little bit more about how you kind of have gotten into the hobby and and gotten to where you are now. So what was your first experience with uh, reptiles like when you were younger? So I don't have the experience where I went herping and, you know, was collecting frogs and garter snakes and all that kind of thing. I did grow up in the city in California, so we didn't really have a whole bunch of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But further, like, I didn't really think about snakes until I was probably in middle school and I was going through kind of the rebellion child stage. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking, okay, like what pet would be cool? And of course I wanted to go to like an extreme. So I'm like, all right, a snake would be pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And then I started looking into it and realized that they don't poop very often. If you clean that up quickly, it doesn't really smell. They are, you know, pretty silent, you know, for the most part, they're not going to bark at you or meow at you. And, um, 
you only have to feed them every once in a while. It's not every day. Like I just, the more I looked into it, I was like, oh, this actually is probably like an, a legit animal to have as a pet. And how old and were then, you at that point? Uh, probably like 12 ish. Okay. Maybe around there. Um, and my mom didn't want me to have any snakes in the house, like period. So when I was 15, I ended up finding an albino corn snake and I snuck it into my house and Mm -hmm. a month later she found it. So this albino corn snake went to all of my friend's house until I went to college. And then she came with me. Um, (laughs) and I had her her whole entire life for 17 years. So that's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah. She even got loose. Like Gosh, the, the week before I moved out of my mom's house, because my mom did allow me to keep them in the garage just so I would move back home after college. Mm-hmm. Um, so I opened the cage, fed her, thought I closed it and locked it. Apparently I didn't. She was missing <laughs> for six months and Jeez. my mom was on the side of the house gardening and she heard our neighbors say, oh my gosh, this is a snake, but it's a really pretty one. So it probably belongs to someone. And my mom was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> first snake back so oh that's <laughs> you're lucky that your neighbors were like not totally like nice freaked about out. it yeah 100 yeah. percent. Yeah. yeah yeah um but yeah I started you know I started with corn snakes and mm-hmm. I realized that they had all different patterns and all different colors and then I just wanted one in every color of course um, and every pattern yeah so that instead of getting shoes I definitely went and got snakes instead mm-hmm. um you still but- red bottom though Red bottom <laughs> shoes, red bottom snakes. Yeah, 100%. That is such a dumb joke. Oh but I like it. I liked Thank it you. a lot. <laughs> but I mean, that's really where I started. And once I moved out of the house, you know, I think a lot of people can relate that once you move out of your parents' house, your collection kind of explodes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that happened, and I ended up getting a boa from college. They gave they gave me their one of their snakes. I don't know why, because we had we had like a snake basement in college, which is awesome. Um, but anyway, I got the boa and then I got like five different corn snakes and I wanted a Brazilian rainbow boa really bad. That was like my, you know, my dream snake at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we evolve a couple years later and we get to 2013 or 2014, I guess. Um, and I, I finally got my Brazilian rainbow boa and the guy that was selling it said, Hey, do you want this blood Python with her? And I was like, oh, sure. Why not? What's another snake, you know? And I, I, I did the wrong thing and like had no idea what I was really getting into. I truly like my blood Python people are going to hate me for this, but I really thought it was just like a red colored, like ball Python. Like I really had no idea what this oh, yeah. was. No difference. Mm-hmm. Really? <laughs> no just, difference at all. <laughs> just a weird morph. <laughs> right. Yeah. I and mean, like just a weird, different pattern. It's cool. It's no, no nothing. <laughs> nothing's different about it. Nah, um, not at all. Right. So I ended up getting the Brazilian rainbow boa and getting the short tail. And that's when I met the partner that I talked about. And we were looking into ball pythons and the different morphs and what we wanted to make. Cause of course we were going to be big ball python breeders. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started looking into blood pythons and the different morphs combination and stuff. Cause I'm a morph girl. If you can't you know, tell by my conversation so far, but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I looked at all the different morphs and blood python was like, holy crap. Like these animals are absolutely amazing. Yeah. And, and that is the start of me getting into the blood pythons and short tails was from that first snake that just came as a package deal. Mm-hmm. So with this first snake, it was just a normal blood python. Yep. He was a a normal Brown, you know, the ones that, you know, most people think are not as attractive, but 
he was a, a good snake, you know, considering the, the blood Python attitude that they're known for. He was, mm-hmm. um, tolerant and he was just, he was a good animal. He was a really good animal to introduce into, uh, the species. So mm-hmm. I can't complain about him at all. No, yeah, he, he sounds brown lovely. and yellow and black and silver, which I think they're beautiful on their own too. Right. You know, right. Even, even as a morph girl, I do know that true wild type blood pythons are absolutely gorgeous. So, mm-hmm. okay. And so I think that's, that's like such a good conversation because that's something that I speak about with my friends, you know, fairly often is like, there is something so beautiful about a quote unquote wild type or normal snake. Um, we do all these crazy cool things to them too, but I, do you know if there's anyone who's working with like selective breeding of normal blood pythons? There are a ton of people. Um, the first person that comes to mind is Kara Norris and she's with the blood cell or TBC. Mm-hmm. And she is responsible for bringing out the reddest of reds that you possibly can. And mm-hmm. like crisp, clean patterns in normal color or quote unquote normal, you know, blood python. <laughs> they have no, no funky genes in them. They are just selectively bred for being the reddest they could possibly be. And she does a fantastic job. Oh, that's really cool. I, um, I just, I don't have a ton of experience with blood pythons. So I think every single one of them is like the coolest one I've seen. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, they have such different varying patterns and you, even with the blood pythons themselves, you go like a yellow phase, you know, Mm -hmm. you can have a hypo phase, you can have the T positive where some of the blacks gone and you have the caramels and purples that Mm -hmm. come through T negative, which I love where all the blacks gone, where you have the whites and the reds and the yellows. So can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Like the T positive versus T negative. I know that that's one of those phrases that I heard a lot when I was first getting into the hobby and and didn't quite understand. So I may really butcher how to say this word, but it's tyranase, I believe. Okay. Um, And you have the positive version, which, okay. If you have a black, a black snake, and it's T yeah. positive. It's, I just kind of think of it as taking out like half the black. Okay. So you still have kind of browns in there and caramels in there and those kind of colors. And then mm-hmm. with the T negative, there's no black at all. So anywhere where you had black on that animal is going to be white. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference between like that in a leucistic or an albino? Um, so the T negative and T positive are albinos. Okay. So that's where you're going to get like uh, let's see. I'm trying to think of a different species and what it would be. Um, like a caramel berm mm-hmm. and an albino berm. So the caramel mm-hmm. is going to be like a T positive and the straight albino, which is the, the white and yellow, that's going to be like your T negative. Cause it takes mm-hmm. out all of the black where the caramel is like, like half of the black. You still see a lot of that color, the Brown's coming in and the caramel colors coming in. Does that make sense? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. And so you specifically are, are focused in T negatives. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, I am. Um, mm-hmm. When I was doing my research back in the day on all the different morphs, I saw a beautiful, beautiful dark red animal, um, with yellow and whites in it. And I just absolutely fell in love. And that is my snake named Jack. Now, um, Mm -hmm. he was one of my, I don't know. He's like my founder snake, I guess he's like 11. Now it's crazy. When you like, look back, you're like, oh my gosh, you're like old now. (laughs) Like 11's not old for a snake, but it's like, oh my gosh, I've had you for so long. Yeah. So Um, what is the, what is the lifespan of like a blood python? It'll be like most of your other snakes, you know, about 20 to 25 years if you take care of them well. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, I think cancer is being coming more prevalent in animals. So Mm -hmm. um, my very first blood python that I told you about, he actually ended up getting tumors on his head that Mm -hmm. um, 
bugged him so much that he ended up rubbing his head raw and like bleeding to death, which is awful. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and that was, I ended up selling him. So that was at the the second owner that had him, well, I guess the third at that point, but nonetheless, um, it was cancer and I I've my corn snake died from a cancer. So I really think that cancer is very prevalent. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't really say with any statistical significance or any research that really backs that up besides just seeing it a lot. <laughs> yeah. Besides so, your anecdotal. So don't take what I'm saying. You know, yeah. Take it with a grain of salt because, you know, um, but yeah, that's how long they would live if they're well taken care of and, mm-hmm. you know, not super fat and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, you see that a them. lot with blood pythons specifically, like they just get obese. Yeah. People think, I mean, when you get a ball python or a corn snake, they tell you to feed it, you know, the width of the body and not bigger than that. Mm-hmm. So if you were to feed a blood python the width of their body, <laughs> you'd be getting very large food sizes, yeah. large prey sizes. Mm-hmm. And their metabolism is just so slow mm-hmm. that they're going to hold on to all of that, you know? So if you're feeding them rabbits every two weeks, mm-hmm. they are just going to get massive, absolutely massive. And you don't have to, I feed my females um, every two weeks, a large rat and, you know, go from there. My males get fed. I, I keep my males smaller, but my males get fed once a month and, you know, they're breeding and they're, I mean, they're studs, <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> like, you know, you don't have to make them huge and mine aren't really long by any means. I definitely keep mine on the smaller side from some people, but mm-hmm. you know, with ge- the, the genetics of the individual, um, really vary too. So some certain animals are going to eat a rat and, you know, grow five feet and the other one is going to take forever. So, but that's the same with, I think all different species. Right. And you say that you keep your animals smaller, but like blood pythons are big. Like what is, I I guess maybe that's to me, they're just a very big animal compared to what I personally keep, but what is your general size that you see your adults get to? And then also what is your um, barometer for when they should start breeding or is it based on size? Is it based on age? What do you look for? So for size, um, if you research blood pythons and just do general research on them, they're going to tell you that they're going to be like six to seven feet long and they're going to be 25 to 30 pounds. Mm -hmm. Mine in general are around the four and a half to five and a half feet. Mm -hmm. And about my females are about 15 pounds. Mm-hmm. And my males are going to be smaller at like the four foot range and be anywhere between seven and 10 pounds. Hmm. Okay. So, um, so I, I think when, when I first was getting into them, I thought I was going to get this massively huge animal and, and you can, you know, you can get that. Right. But I just, I think it's excessive. I don't think there's a need for it. My animals are healthy. They have good girth to them. You know, they're good to right. go mm-hmm. um, for breeding. I don't do it. I do it by size, but it's not like in ball pythons where you rush to get your female to 2000 grams or whatever it may be. <laughs> right. It's with females, it's four years old. And then if their body composition is, you know, built enough, like basically if they have enough reserves to be able to um, have eggs. So that's what I go by and males, it's like three years old mm-hmm. and you can, you can try it. And if it doesn't work, they'll probably need another year. Um, And you kind of just go with that. I basically use a four year as my mark, because if you're taking care of your animals, they should have a good, healthy size to them to be able to lay eggs. So, yeah, that's a good point. So when you are like introducing them for, for breeding, what is that process like for you? Are you temperature cycling, food cycling, doing any of those things? And then how do you introduce the actual animals? 
I mean, <laughs> I'm like the most non-serious detail oriented person when it comes <laughs> to breathing. <laughs> but um, if it works, it works. Yeah. Basically I started around Thanksgiving time. Um, I started it a month earlier this year just to see if I could kind of alter the way they lay and everything. And it didn't work. I'll tell you that. Um, Mm -hmm. but I generally wait for a rainstorm or a storm of some sort, Mm -hmm. and then just put the male in with the female and hope for locks. Um, that's a lot lot easier now that you live in uh, Memphis than when you lived in South Carolina or South California. Yes. Yes, it is. They love being in Memphis so much more than in California because I fought with humidity um, blood pythons should be anywhere between 50 and 70%, give or take. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in California, it's like 15. So I was constantly fighting with spraying them and soaking them and doing all these things. And then here in my room during the summer, especially we'll stay at 65% and I'm good to go. So, you know, it's easy here. Yeah. That's oh, I'm struggling with that up here in Ohio. I've had just a horrible winter for sheds. It's just, I think my room is at like 30% humidity. Yeah. It's so hard. It's so hard. Yeah. <laughs> you have, like dry winters. And you're like, well, I hope you guys do. Okay. Here, I'll dump your water bowl for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're like, this is the best you got. Um, so you introduce the animals after, you know, you've got the, the temperatures or the gosh, the weather fluctuations, the temperatures, all that stuff. And then, um, are you generally introducing males into females enclosures or females into males or, and what does the incubation period look like for them? Yeah. So I always do males to females. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess just my mentors with blood pythons, that's how they did it. So that's how I did it too. There's no, I don't have any like logical reason as to why that is. Mm -hmm. Um, but I go ahead and put the males to the females. If I find that if I see them lock awesome. And then if I find they're on separate sides of the enclosure, then I'll take them out. Um, or I'll leave the male in there for a good couple of days. And then when it's feeding time, I'll separate them and feed them, give them a few days and put them back. Um, or wait for the next storm. Like I said, I really don't have necessarily a rhyme or reason. Mm-hmm. I just kind of go for it, which yeah. maybe is frustrating to some people, but you know, this is my hobby and what I like. So I don't want it to be like this tedious job where I'm doing all this research and all this record keeping and all this craziness because it's just something fun that I do. Right. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I'm not so stringent and strict on it. Um, but once they do, they've locked maybe three or four times. Then I just like hope and pray that my female swells up so big. It looks like she swallowed a football and then I know she's <laughs> ovulating. And then from there, I'm like, okay, so now, now we were like waiting for a shed. All right. So that next shed that she has, I then wait for about 30 days after she sheds. And that's about when she's going to lay her eggs. Mm-hmm. And then from there, um, I put them at 86 degrees in an incubator and I had a lot of incubation. I'm going to go off on a little tangent right now, but I had a no, lot of incubation feel free. issues. <laughs> I used to use, um, where you have like the, the light diffuser on top of perlite or on top yeah. of the sponge or on top. So I did that and all my eggs molded and I don't, well, not all of them, but like two thirds of them immediately molded over and were gone and done. Hmm. Was this so, your first clutch or was this a recent one? No, this was actually my second year into it. Okay. Um, Cause I've only, I've not been doing this very long with the blood pythons. I've been building and building and building, you know, the breeding stock and getting mm-hmm. all the genetics that I want, et cetera. So, um, As this you will should. Be my, right. This will be my fourth year of actually breeding them. But in my second year I had trouble with mold and that was in Tennessee. 
and which kind of makes sense because it is more humid. Um, and then that was on, on perlite. And then the next year I did it again, but did like the diffuser and they were on top of the perlite and that happened again. So I went to my mentors and they were like, try vermiculite instead and put the eggs right in it. So I did. And that saved the one third that I had. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was my babies from last year, but that's good that you had someone to turn to. I think that's so important to, to get a mentor and get someone you can really trust in the hobby and, and tell them like, Hey, I fucked up. Help me. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's nice because they don't, they don't make you feel bad about it. Like I'm very, very lucky to be in the community that I am in because I know a lot of people don't have the experiences that I do, which Mm -hmm. are mostly positive. Mm -hmm. You know, if I have help, people aren't going to tell me that I did a shitty job that I should have known better. Like, I don't get any of that. I get just help like, okay, that's, that's not the right way. So let's adjust it and change it a little bit. Right. Um, and that's what I got. And then those eggs that I put on vermiculite, they were fine and ended up hatching. And those are the babies that I have now. Um, but that takes about 60 days (laughs) (laughs) going back to the incubation. Um, but I do incubate mine a little bit at a lower temperature than most people do people. You can incubate them just like you do ball pythons where it's going to be the, um, I think 89 degrees is what people do. Mm -hmm. Um, I do it at 86 degrees and I mean, it's not going to hurt them. It just takes a little bit longer. So when you're at that 60 day mark, it's not going to happen. It's going to be like another week or two after that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there's no, okay. This might make me sound super ignorant. There's no type of a uh, sex determination that can be done for bloods with the temperature. Not that I am aware of. Okay. <laughs> I know that that, so. I know that that's something that is semi-common with, uh, lizards and you can incubate certain temperatures to help get more males and more females. And I just, I haven't heard about it with snakes. So figured I'd ask. Um, yeah, not that I'm aware. I think it's just like turtles and lizards as far as I know. Yeah. But crocodiles you can do that with. I'll just keep asking people that maybe instead of having to Google it, I'll just keep asking. Um, <laughs> You'll get your answer. One of these times. eventually, maybe I'll just figure it out myself one day. Um, <laughs> so like you said, you've only been actually working, um, actually breeding for the last couple of years. So what is your determination when you were building up your collection? Were you focused on a specific, uh, lineage or specific morph that you really wanted to work with, or was it kind of a hodgepodge at first? And then you got more focused. How's that been for you? Um, it was slightly hodgepodge at first. And Mm then, um, I bought a collection from one of my friends. And when we got there, Oh gosh, like a good third of his animals were sick and stupid me decided to take them anyway. And I can oh. make them better. I'll fix them. Right. How <laughs> so, big was this um, collection? Uh, I want to say like 15 animals at that okay. time. Yeah. So that's, um, that's a lot of work. If you got a third was, of them sick, it was. Yeah. And then, um, Terrell took some, he was my partner. He took some, and then I, you know, took a bunch of them and I got all his caging. It literally was like, I'm getting out of a hobby kind of a sale. But mm-hmm. I think when that occurred, um, it's possible, you know, uh, I'm getting out of the hobby, so I'm not going to put all of my attention to them anymore. Maybe right. that happened. I don't know here nor there. Bottom line of the story is that I believe, I don't know by test results, but I believe that Nido went through my collection at that point, And that's what the animals were sick with. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of not by choice necessarily, but my collection diminished by uh, a good amount mm-hmm. um, until I kind of, I had about three snakes that I like were highly coveted of mine. Mm-hmm. And 
they died. And then I had like my favorite, my most expensive snake that I ever bought. Plus my favorite. Cause he was so good with kids and he was such a good temperament. Um, when he died, I said enough is enough. And I made the decision to euthanize every single animal that had any sort of slight sniffle, slight symptoms of an RI. Mm-hmm. They were just going to be euthanized. Um, so when was that, this? You know, Oh, I want to say 2015 or 2016 when it happened. So this wasn't, this was kind of before like the discussions about NIDO were really happening in force. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes, it was. And then from learning everything about NIDO, that's when I was like, Ooh, I think that's what I had. Yeah. And, I mean, it know, would I've, make sense, especially yeah. buying a, a sick collection. Yes. And you know, antibiotics did nothing except for one of them. I still have one. I think it's like two animals. I think I have from him still, um, that ended up making it through, but they're ones that I honestly assume have NIDO that is just asymptomatic at the, at the moment. It's mm-hmm. kind of like COVID where you have COVID, but you're asymptomatic yeah. to it. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's, it's just there. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you have intentions on breeding or excuse me on testing? Obviously you want to breed on testing these animals. You know what? Honestly, not really. Um, and the reason being is they're not leaving my collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I was going to be selling it to someone else, I definitely would. Right. But I'm not. And then when it comes to breeding, that virus doesn't get passed down into the eggs. Right. And so when the the eggs hatch, you know, as long as you keep those separate, then they're good. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel like I'm spreading it in any way. Right. Um, So with your, with bringing new animals in and, and having them, you know, go in and out of your collection as a breeder, as someone who sells and buys animals, um, what is your quarantine procedure like if any right now? And how does that compare to when you started? So when I started, I didn't have any, and that was kind of, I I had a studio, which was a convert converted garage. And that was my room and the snake's room. And that's all the space that I had. Yeah. That's how I started too. (laughs) not a garage, but I was in an attic. Yeah. You you can't really do a true, you know, quarantine at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and now it is a three month quarantine in a separate room from my collection now. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say though, that if I very, very closely know the person I'm getting the animal from that, they don't go through as strict of a quarantine at that point. Mm-hmm. And are you testing for anything or doing any, you know, specific work with the animals that are in quarantine or is it more just kind of visually seeing how they're doing and, and playing it by ear in that regard? Yeah, it's more visually seeing it at that point. Mm-hmm. And I know that makes me sound like a very irresponsible, honestly. No, keeper. and I, I hope, <laughs> I hope that. No, I hope that my line of questioning doesn't like sound like that. I'm, I just think it's, it's interesting and it's, you know, it's good to hear how different people do it because at least you are quarantining. And if your animal appears healthy, most of the time you'll be able right. to tell. Yeah. And, and I don't have, and I don't have any intention. I'm very, very particular with my animals that I build. I guess, gosh, you asked me that like, I don't know, 20 minutes ago, <laughs> I built my collection. <laughs> no, it's, it's all part. It's all part of the flow of the podcast, <laughs> right? We're just going to ebb and flow here. Um, but yeah, so the animals that I get, I don't, when I have a clutch of babies, I only will keep one of whatever pattern and color type. I don't want to keep a whole bunch of them. Mm-hmm. I do my best to try to pick out what the quote unquote best would be, but you know, that best can be different for all different types of people. Right. Um, but I'm not going to have a multitude of any one gene or any expression of a, you know, numerous genes Mm -hmm. in my collection. And because of that, um, I really 
keep them to like actually keep them for, you know, most of their life or all of their life. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that's why I really don't stress myself to also, you know, test them on everything. Now, if it came from a collection that I knew had it, I might test it, but at the same time, like, I'm pretty sure I have it dormant in some of my animals in my collection. So what does it, what does it matter if that animal comes in? You know, mm-hmm. I think that's an does interesting, that, that make sense? yeah, it, it definitely makes sense. And I think that's a very interesting take because there's like a couple camps of like people who talk about Nido. It's like the people who just don't talk about it at all. The people yep. who are <laughs> like very afraid of it and like very, very diligent and make sure they never get it, which, you know, it like respect that. And there's people who are kind of accepting of like, yeah, Nido is in most big collections. And as long as you keep healthy animals, like you're probably safe. And it seems like you kind of fall into that third camp more. Yep. Um, I think the the only thing that might get me in trouble with my collection is if I have a power outage and the temperatures go down, even temporarily, um, yeah. you know, for a day or two that, that would stress them enough to trigger it. Right. Um, I actually, actually in some of the videos I did of my T negative ivory that had that RI. Yeah. I was um, going to bring that up. So you've had, yeah, a, she, you've had an animal that's been struggling with, is it recurring RIs or just one bad one? Um, it's recurring after she lays eggs, which is a stressor and it'll come out at that point. And then, um, this one kind of hit out of the blue because she bred the year before mm-hmm. and then winter hit and she was on the bottom of my rack. So I'm not sure if her tub specifically was just more cool right. than the other ones. Cause my room, I keep at like 75 to 80 degrees mm-hmm. and they have hotspot. I keep a hotspot for them at 86 degrees. So mm-hmm. I'm not really hundred percent sure exactly what happened, but it triggered, um, a bacterial growth and, I can't remember what bacteria it was. I just remember it was a bacteria that should be in your gut and it just was, you know, proliferating all over the place in her lungs and her trachea and stuff. So, um, I ended up, she's, she's good now. I actually just checked her before, um, before I got on here and gave her, I was late to my own podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, it's perfect. I gave her a little pat, you know, make her hiss. And then it was a very clear sounding hiss. So I think we're out of the blue. She's been clear sounding for a couple of weeks. Um, but I do believe that, um, the NIDO in itself suppresses the immune system. And that's when a different bacteria is going to start to take over and Mm -hmm. to get out of hand. And so when people think, Oh, I just have an RI, Anytime anyone has an RI, just because of what I know now about NIDO, I'm like, you probably have NIDO, but most people don't want to hear that. So I won't necessarily tell them that, (laughs) (laughs) but but it's like, if you have an RI, you probably have NIDO, honestly. And it's just the virus suppressing the immune system and allowing some other bacteria to get out of control. So it looks like a bacterial infection, but really the root cause of it is that, that viral. Mm -hmm. So So I know that, you know, being with myself being more active in the, the green tree Python community, NIDO is a very big conversation that happened. That's happening all the time. Are you seeing that in the blood Python community as much? Is it making its way that way? Is it been talked about for a while? Um, so Steve Tillis is doing his PhD on it Mm -hmm. and he had, he was a very big uh, I don't even want to say was, he still is uh, a big blood python breeder and person in that, you know, working with that species. Right. And he was extremely transparent about the fact that he had NIDO um, mm-hmm. and that, you know, I'm, I'm 
assuming that's what spurred on him wanting to do all the research in it. Right. Um, but that's when people started talking about it and it was, you know, not necessarily in the most positive of light. It was definitely very fear-based conversations that were coming from it. Mm -hmm. Um, like even me being transparent about it, I'm sure I'm on people's blacklists, which, you know, that's fine. If that's what you want, that's cool. I'm not going to, you know, say anything from it, but that's kind of like the vibe that I get from the general blood Python community is that NIDO is like death, which sometimes yes it is, but you know, it's like the end all of everything when really it's not, if you have a stable collection and overall, you know, it's stability. If your collection is stable, you probably won't have issues, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so it, it was in conversations then, and that was a couple of years ago. And then, you know, when, when green tree people or carpet Python people, when they have an influx of it or some big breeder has it and it becomes public, then, you know, there's talking about it, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not like in the green tree Python where it's, it's a big deal in your guys's species, because I think it eradicates your guys's species a lot. Yeah. They harsher than it really, really, Python. they it seems Super like in general, good. green trees just don't bounce back from those kinds of things very well. They get sick bad and they get sick very fast. And that is the same thing with, uh, if you don't catch it right away, like I heard this ivory, I heard that she had the sniffles and I immediately took her to the vet and mm-hmm. got a culture. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's a key thing is you need to immediately go and get a culture because right. the normal, what, what is it called? Fortas? Is that the frozen antibiotic? Do you know? I think, I think, I think that, I think that's what it is. Yeah. I'm not going to correct you. I don't know if you've listened to any of the other podcasts, but I have a tendency to just nod my head and agree with the guests. So (laughs) I think it's Fortas. Um, and what, whatever the frozen one, the Mm -hmm. frozen antibiotic that almost all uh, vets end up giving to, to reptiles. That one would not have worked on this bacteria that my ivory had. Right. And neither would have Batril. It was like some off the wall antibiotic that they had to order specifically for me. Um, so my point on that is that extra hundred, hundred fifty dollars to get a culture probably saved her life because I probably would have been giving her injections for months without her getting better because that wasn't the right antibiotic for that bacteria that she had. So if you hear the sniffles and you catch it right away and you get that, that culture done, then I think you have a much, much higher chance of not having the issue of spreading the, the problem with NIDO is it can spread from animal to animal, either if you, you know, use the same tools or they're in the same rack together, or they're in close contact, it seems to just spread through air. Um, so if you can catch it right away and kind of segregate that animal, I ended up segregating her from the rest of my collection while she was being treated. Um, no other animal has had any issues and she's fine now and good to go and back at her healthy weight. She's all good. Um, so, you know, it's definitely timing. And like I said, get that culture. I can't even like stress that enough. If you have any symptoms of RI, get a culture because that will will absolutely save your animal and have them turn around way faster. So, so you make a really good point of like getting things tested and, and making sure that when you see an RI acting very quickly, have you talked, um, how did you decide which doctor or vet you wanted to work with? So I know that like my vet is very good with reptiles because he works at the local aquarium too, but have you had a lot of good resources in your area to talk to good vets? So when I first moved out here, I worked with someone who previously worked at like Petco, I believe, and then, um, has her own snake. So she guided me and recommended me to a doctor. Mm-hmm. And then just being in the reptile community in this area, I've, you know, 
I went to that doctor and then realized that, you know, a lot of people go to this doctor. He's a very highly recommended doctor to go to for reptiles. Mm -hmm. And also you can kind of tell if you've been to, to, you know, a couple of different vets that deal with reptiles, you can tell the ones that know what they're talking about and the ones that don't. Yeah. Um, without and, a doubt. You know, right. When, when you know more than they do about the animal, even just snakes in general, that's normally a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, but he knew right away, he knew the different species. Like he could tell me about their anatomy and how it works and like explain what was going on with the illness and all that kind of thing. So I have, you know, his, his name's Dr. Nation and he's in Memphis. So if anyone in my area needs a vet, he's a really, really great one. And he's not going to gouge you with prices, which is absolutely amazing. So yeah, he's very good with prices. That's a very difficult thing, especially with having any exotic animals is the exotics charge on top of every other fee. Just yes. and it, it is more this world. expensive, yes, but it's not like, man, I went to some vets, especially being in California where I was just like, oh my God, this is just going to absolutely kill my bank account, you know, <laughs> but mm -hmm. with him, with him, I can say, do what you need to do. And I know that it's not going to necessarily gouge my bank account. So right. that's nice to have that feeling when you're like, I know you're going to do what's necessary for the animal and you're not going to overdo it just so you can charge me more. And that's what he is. So, yeah, absolutely. So, um, kind of skipping back a little bit, but sure. I know that you talked about earlier, you know, splitting a collection with your previous partner and moving to Memphis and, and then you have these potentially neto positive animals. How did that stressor go for your animals, like with the whole move? And did you notice anything with them that they struggled with? No. And that's why I, I said earlier that my animals just absolutely love Memphis because I moved here and I really didn't. And I, I drove across country. It took a good couple of days. And, <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I was in the front seat of a U-Haul with my friend driving across. And one of my snakes, like probably like my retic or my berm made a very large mess. So we're sitting in this tiny cab of the yeah. U-Haul, oh. like nasty urate like crap smell like it was so we, I've done like, that it had to go across the country thank god but I was driving to a show and I had a 150 pound sulcata tortoise in my trunk and it's shit and I was like oh <laughs> right it's like Ugh. and we were driving non-stop so it was through the night when I, we couldn't put them in my car which we were trailing behind because right. it got too cold and, yeah. and so mm -hmm. we had to put him in you know the little cab with us but Oh, man. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it, it turned out once I set them up and everything, they were fine. Um, no worse for wear, honestly, mm -hmm. which That's you know, really is, good. is wonderful. Yeah. You know, I got very lucky. I feel with that. And then, um, a year later I moved again, just locally in Memphis and had no issues with that either. So, you good. know, knock on wood. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very lucky. <laughs> Um, so tell me a little bit about your setup. So how do you keep most of your animals? Um, I know that, I know that you have some rack systems, but you also have a couple of bioactives. So I'd love to chat more about that. Sure. Um, for my snakes, I have rack systems and caging and none of that is bioactive. Mm -hmm. Um, for babies, I keep them in small sterilite tubs until it looks like they're exploding out, mm -hmm. um, with blood pythons and short tails and some other species, but specifically these guys they really like to feel hidden. And, um, when you put them in too big of a space, they feel too exposed and that stresses them out and they'll stop eating. They'll start mm -hmm. losing weight. You know, all these, you know, negative things might happen. Mm -hmm. So I really keep them in that small area until it looks like they take up like two thirds of the space. Then I'll move them up. Mm -hmm. Um, from there, I put them on cocoa fiber mix. Well, 
it's the pro cocoa that it's like a blended mix. So I don't know if, I don't know if you've seen it, but instead of just chips or just plain fiber, it's kind of like mixed in the middle there. Okay, cool. I really like that for my bloods. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll do that for my juveniles up to probably like three or four years old. And then they switch over to paper. Like I said, all of them run rack systems. Um, some of them will have an actual hide, which is just like a rubber made Tupperware that I put a hole in. Um, Mm -hmm. and then some of them that are more secure and, you know, more confident don't need that. So I just put crumpled paper on top of them and they hide under that. Um, And that's smart. Such intelligent creatures we work with. Right. You know, like it's. (laughs) They don't really do much. They just kind of sit there. So mm-hmm. they don't really need a lot of climbing. You know, mm-hmm. I have a carpet Python that I have more of a natural setup, but it's not bioactive and, right. you know, he climbs and uses everything, mm-hmm. but the blood pythons, I mean, I've never, I guess I've never experimented and gave them stuff to climb on and do things on, but I just really can't imagine that they would use it right. or they're too fat and would just destroy it. You know, so <laughs> I'm not really sure. Yeah. It's Um, yeah. That would be a little difficult to give them too much enrichment that they can't just absolutely topple. Right. And then Mm -hmm. the bioactive, the big bioactive cage that I have is my bearded dragon. Mm -hmm. Um, he is in a six foot by two foot cage that has real plants in it. Um, that they're actually like house palms is what they look like. And then Mm -hmm. I have, um, some carax, which is just like a grassy type of plant. Um, Mm -hmm. that's in there. And I had one plant and I didn't know what it was and he ate it. And I freaked out because (laughs) I didn't know if it was poisonous or not poisonous. And I was like, oh my gosh, but he's still living today. So I think it's good. Good. Glad to hear it. (laughs) Send me a picture of the plant. Maybe I'll be able to IED. Okay. Yeah. I have another one. I totally can. Um, so yeah, he's bioactive. I put roaches in there. We put, you know, the mealworms and let them turn to beetles and stuff. Those are in there. Mm -hmm. Um, I tried with like the roly polies and isopod kind of thing, but it's just too hot in there and it's too dry in there for those really to do well. Yeah. Um, I, I did one arid setup with, um, giant Canyon isopods and they did not do well. <laughs> yeah. I, I like don't know if it was user basically. error or something else, but so with that bioactive setup, what kind of lights are you running? I have, um, a very large UVB. I think it's like a four foot UVB light. And mm-hmm. then I have, I went on Amazon and found like LED, like plant grow lights. Mm-hmm. And so I put that in there also. Yeah. Those so are those definitely are meant for, uh, those grow lights are for sure for bearded dragon enclosures, not anything <laughs> else people might be growing in their houses. Yep. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. I, for. <laughs> uh-huh. mm-hmm. I believe you. Yep. <laughs> you are from California. <laughs> What's so funny about that is I was, I actually have like, I, planted a bunch of seeds so I could save money for my, my yard. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to someone who had me on speakerphone and I was talking about how I was so excited that my seeds came up and it seems like my grow lights are working. And I was like, <laughs> to be clear, <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah. That is a distinction that needs to be made. Right. <laughs> but yeah, he's like my most extensive bioactive that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the dubia roaches that I have in there tend to be the cleanup crew that, you know, all that he really needs. Right. And then when he sees one moving around, he might, you know, come out and run after it and, and get it, um, which is honestly the most activity I've seen him do. He doesn't do it a lot, but I feel like it is good for him to, you know, he, he burrows some in, in the dirt. I have like a 50% dirt sand mix in there. That's really all I use. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He seems to be a little bit more, he's old too. So I can't really say like 
what's normal for activity for bearded dragons or what's not. <laughs> but right, how long have to- you how long have you had this beardy? I've had him since he was a little baby, and that was probably like five or six years ago. Okay, yeah, because I know that it was just you know in the last year that you built this bioactive yep. setup. Yep. Because yep. I remember so, chatting it with you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Gosh, it was interesting learning, learning curve. When I do yeah. like projects like that, I just like go for it. And I'm like, you, well, this yeah. is good enough. We'll see. You went for it so hard. You're like, okay, I think <laughs> I'm going to do this. And then the next week you're like, I did it. <laughs> yeah. That's basically how I am. So <laughs> me in a nutshell right there. Um, <laughs> what was yeah. it that made you want to switch to a uh, bioactive and like a more of a, a view situation for him? What was he living in before that? So he was living in a four by two um, in my snake room. Okay. So still a good size. Yeah. It was, it was a fine size for a birdie birdie (laughs) for a little bird. Yeah. (laughs) It was a good size for him anyway, but he hates snakes like a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and he lived in a snake room and, and then he started getting this like head tremor. And I originally thought that it was a calcium deficiency, but then one of my friends said that he, he's a, I want to say like a trans leatherback or something like that. Some, whatever gene combination he is, has a tendency when they get older to have some neuro problems mm-hmm. and it comes out as when he is very nervous, um, or upset, he will have this like very fast tremor in his head. Okay. Um, is it like so he's I, shaking his head or is like his head he, is. It's like, like he's shivering. It, it oh, looks like that. Okay, it's yeah. like, like he's shivering, but only on his head. Gotcha. And so I was like, what the heck is this, you know, what the heck? So I decided that, you know, he probably should not live in a snake room where he Mm -hmm. was, and he was on the floor too, where my cats would walk back and forth. And he didn't Mm -hmm. exactly like that either. Um, so, so it just made him nervous whenever he got nervous, he would have that tremor. And I was like, well, I could bring him into the living room, but if he's in my living room, I'm going to want it to be more of like a display kind of a thing and not just this box in my living room. Um, and that's when it, you know, exploded into this six foot two, bioactive with plants and leaves and all sorts of things in there for him. So, yeah. Oh, I think that's so great. I think, you know, beardies are one of those animals that people do have a tendency to see as more, um, disposable, unfortunately. So it's, it's good to see someone really kicking ass with their care. (laughs) Yeah. Um, He's stuck with me. So yeah, (laughs) better like it. (laughs) So besides, you know, you got the blood pythons, you have how many, uh, carpet pythons do you have? just one just the one one. is that just a a pet you like to have yeah um his name is Dante and he's a jungle diamond cross and he's Mm -hmm. just beautiful and he's not he's not the nicest snake but me and him have this understanding and I just don't have confidence (laughs) that he would any other keeper would have understanding with him like I do so he's another one of those forever pets because I just want to make sure that you know they're not going to be stressed out all the time and striking all crazy all the time when you know I get him and I let him do what he needs to do and we mm-hmm. seem to work out okay so yep he's my only one that I have now mm-hmm. um, I have the two beak snakes and oh yeah I forgot I, about those beak snakes yep um they're pretty that you're cold, trying to pawn off on me I am I'm <laughs> to pawn off on anyone mostly because honestly I don't keep them how they should be kept like they I feel that they should be kept in a very naturalistic setting and have all these different things that they can rummage in and hide in and nooks and mm-hmm. crannies mm-hmm. and I just don't have that for them. So right. I feel like I'm doing them such a disservice by how I'm keeping them, which really is a hide, a water bowl. And they're on sandy chips. Like, I feel like that's terrible for that species. 
yes, they're surviving and yes, they're living and, you know, in other sense of the word doing okay, you know, but right. I just, I don't feel that I'm doing it justice and I'm focusing on blood pythons and short tails. So it's like, eh, do I want to put all this money into another cage? It's going to be all crazy and cool when I could put more money into my breeding program. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's, it says a lot that you are um, like aware that maybe you're not giving them the best care, not that you're giving them bad care, but that you're just not giving them the best care Um, and that you're, you're willing to admit that and say something and maybe try to get them in other hands. Um, and if someone's like killer at breeding them too, cause they're not really widespread at being captively bred yet. Mm-hmm. So I've tried and I failed. Like I had a trio together in a naturalistic habitat for like a year and nothing happened. Mm-hmm. So actually more than that, like two years and nothing happened. Um, and are they a so, that is easily cohabbed? Yes, absolutely. They are. Yeah. Well, I don't really know looking, why they are. <laughs> yeah. If anyone looking, look at a uh, blood spy design, which I think is your name, which I can't fucking remember ever. <laughs> I need to write it down. Um, so um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Yep. Pretend I'm stupid. Okay. What's different? Oh, wow. That was way too easy for you to pretend. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> you say you're focusing on blood tail or uh, blood pythons and short tails. What's the difference? All right. There's three different species in the short tail complex. Mm-hmm. Um, they all physically have a short tail. Mm-hmm. So you could call a blood python a short tail in a sense. Um, but they're all different species. One of them is the python curtis, and that is the Sumatran short tails. Mm-hmm. They are misnamed as black bloods and some people that like grinds their gears. So <laughs> call them Sumatran short tails. Okay. Um, but they're the ones that are beautiful and jet black. And some of them are very um, silvery with different patterns. And then you have a caramel albino, which like I said earlier is cutting out half of the black. So it's a, you know, the purpley caramely brownie colors mm-hmm. that is one species. And then you have another species, which is the Python bright and steiny or steiny. I'm going to probably, you know, butcher it, but here we mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're the ones, uh, live off the Island of Borneo and they are the Borneo short tails. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are more brown and more silver. Sometimes you'll see more coral and oranges in their necks and their heads. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the ones, they have very unpredictable genetics still at this point that some people are still trying to figure out it's where you put two together and you think you're going to get something and you get something totally different. Um, Interesting. So I'm not good with that type of, <laughs> I guess, not knowing, like I'm not good with surprises like that. So I tend to not really work with them. Okay. Um, and then you have the blood pythons, which is the Python brongers, my, mm-hmm. um, and there you're going to find them on Malaysia and, um, Indonesia and some of the islands. I'm probably misspeaking that a little bit. So don't quote me on that exactly. Um, but they are a completely different species and they're the ones that are more red and you see a lot more of the morphs and everything in the blood pythons. So do you see, um, that people, two questions, do people have a tendency to choose one of the three species to really focus on? And then my second question is, do you ever see people breeding like in, in between the species? That is like the biggest no, no ever. for. Uh, yeah. I figured, I figured, I, figured I, saw, I remember seeing one post about it one time and someone getting yes, like, yes. And exactly I was like, oh, okay. you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's so unfortunate because someone will come in, like, the, I know the exact incident you're talking about mm-hmm. and someone comes in super excited about their snake and you know do the whole what is it I don't know what this is mm-hmm. 
And, you know, people were like, well, that's probably a hybrid that looks like a hybrid and hybrids just have such a bad taste in, in blood python breeders mouth, because when you hybridize the animal, it's very mm -hmm. hard to distinctively tell that it is a hybrid. And so what they are very worried about is that, um, you know, people sell and resell it's, it's not, you know, like a dog where you get it and you keep it for forever. Right. So, so you know, the genetics of it could get lost. So even though you might be producing it and you might be labeling it correctly, that next person that gets it might forget or might not label it correctly and just go by what they think it looks like most. Mm -hmm. And then when you do that and you breed it to a pure blood, you know, you, once you breed it to a pure blood, you can't go back and make it pure again. Right. And so as blood pythons, um, keepers as a whole in general, in general, um, they just don't want to lose the purity of the species. Mm -hmm. And that's why they get, you know, their panties in a twist about that. So <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So I do not do that. There are some <laughs> people that do do that. Um, I guess it really just depends on what you like. Mm -hmm. If you like more of the brown colors, then you know, people are going to tend to go more to the, the Borneos. I will say though, that even though like I focus more on T negative blood pythons, but I have really dark Sumatrans that I'm working with. And then I have the albino Sumatrans I'm working with. And then I have a couple random Borneo projects, but the bulk of what I'm interested in, I love is the blood python. And so I think what that is goes it? for, um, I think that is kind of a, a more, a widespread kind of viewpoint. I think I, you know, I'm generalizing the people in the blood <laughs> python hobby, but you know, a lot of times you have someone that focuses heavily on Borneo short tails. And I'm thinking of Matt Minatola specifically, you know, he's right. focuses heavily on them, but he also has those Sumatran projects and he has blood python projects too. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's not just like one thing for you personally. What is it about the blood python that just draws you to them versus the others? I honestly, I actually really like Sumatran short tails are my favorite. They're my absolute mm. favorite. So she's um, a Sumatrans by design and next week. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I usually heard all the different names I was coming up with and people were just like, no, April, that is not good. <laughs> um, but I, I, I love the dark color of them. And then I fell in love with all the T negative. Mm -hmm. And like I said earlier, I'm a morph girl and there's a little bit more variability in the blood right. pythons that I can kind of play with and mess around with. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's why I tend to focus on them for breeding projects, but I do love my Sumatran short tails. I think they're the best pet out of all three of them. What is it that makes them the best pet? I think their temperament is the most, um, steady and mm -hmm. the most calm. Now I will say their feed response is the most hardcore of the three species in that okay. I would put like a rat on a tongue and she would come flying out of the tub and get my hand instead. And it felt Ooh. like someone like punched the crap out of my hand. Yeah. Um, so that's when I got like the four foot tongs and I looked like a little pansy, you know, <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> you're not, you're not very tall. So your four foot tongs, I can't imagine make you look any taller. So <laughs> right? Yeah. So I look like I look so silly doing it, but it's because I learned and I got my hand bit way too many times in a feeding response. And if you know a difference between a feeding response bite and a regular bite, mm -hmm. the feeding response, they are going to hold on. They are going to wrap you and they want to like, you know, they want to make sure you're dead so they can eat you. And that is just really yeah, with painful a, with a snake that big. Yeah. And so, they're just so heavy and you unwrap them halfway and then they just wrap back up and it's just a pain in the butt. So mm -hmm. get long tongs. <laughs> That's a good, good advice. Um, <laughs> so with you working with larger snakes. Um, do you ever have any worry about working with them alone? 
sometimes. Um, it's more, I have one Burmese python and I have one reticulated python Mm -hmm. and they worry me more than the short tails. The short tails, I don't give like two shits about, honestly. Mm -hmm. I'm just make sure that I have the right tools Mm -hmm. when I'm feeding my animals. So that way I'm not getting myself too close to them when they're in that more feeding response vibe. Also, when you're with animals long enough, especially when you work with one species long enough, you learn how to read them and be able to tell like, like if your cat's in a bad mood or your dog's in a bad mood, you kind of learn it after a while. Mm -hmm. And that honestly is the same with reptiles too. You learn when your snake is in a bad mood or when your snake is hungry and wants to try to launch at your face. Like you just learn those things. Mm -hmm. So don't be a dummy and put yourself in a situation where, you know, you can get yourself in trouble that way. Right. So with my big girls, if they're acting a little bit feisty with me or a little bit fresh because they're hungry, it's not because they're mean. It's not because they're extra aggressive or anything. They're just hungry. Mm -hmm. Then I am extra cautious and I might call one of my friends and FaceTime with them, you know, to make sure that they know that I'm okay. Or I might be like, Hey, I'm cleaning my big snakes. If I don't call you in 30 minutes, like send help, <laughs> you know, yeah. kind of a thing. like check on me, please. Yeah. Um, because I am by myself. Um, mm-hmm. I do have a roommate now, so that is helpful. But you know, when you're absolutely by yourself working with those big animals, you have to be careful Yeah, and, and you have to be smart about it. So hmm. Is in okay, so finding a roommate when you have all the snakes, is that hard? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Do you put that on Craigslist? Like <laughs> I I don't. I put that I have animals in cages <laughs> is what I put. <laughs> yeah, that's to, the, that's know. the perfect verbiage. Right. Yeah. You know, I have caged animals in the house is is what I say. And then, you know, if it turns out to be someone that's actually, you know, that seems to be a good fit then I will go into the details of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, the spiel, they're in their own room. I'm not going to bring them out. I'm not going to put them in your face. You're never going to see them. If you didn't know they were there, you would never know they were there. Right. Type of type of thing. And sometimes that's cool with people and sometimes it's not. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's their own prerogative. I think that's something that's uh, so funny when you talk to people who don't have snakes at all is that I'm going through the process right now of actually trying to move and trying to find somewhere to live. And, and it's like, no, I, I don't take them out or do anything with them. I'm not going to bring them into the, the kitchen. They just stay there. They just stay in their cage and I look at them occasionally. You know, <laughs> I think a lot of people think that when you have pet reptiles, you're just playing with them all the time and like trying to shove them down other people's throats. Well, I think people also envision, like, I don't know if you've seen the meme with like all the reptile cages, like every like cages everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I, even people that are, you know, cage heavy, and that's the main way that they keep them. It's just, it's like not like that. Like you're visualizing yeah. something so absurd and so, you know, outrageous and over-exaggerated. It's just not like that. So I, I tell people, I'm like, I'm like, you know, like the drawer systems you find at like Ikea or something like, it's kind of like that, mm-hmm. but it's set up for the animal and they're in, they're each in their own little cage and it stacks. So it saves up more room. They're like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. You know, and it kind of gives them a better idea of what's going on, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) people think that, you know, you have cages everywhere and that you just have like loose snakes everywhere. It's like, "Mm, no, sorry, friend. (laughs) My God. I can't even like a free roaming snake. Oh, no, thank you. (laughs) Right. My cat would not be happy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, how do your cats, um, deal with all the snakes you have? Do they, do you notice any behavioral differences with them? I surely wish they were more afraid of them. That yeah. is for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have the Sphinx cats, the naked cats. Mm-hmm. And so I think they love going to that room because it's warmer. 
Mm -hmm. And so when they hear me open that door, they come running, they (laughs) yell at me when I'm inside the room and they're not inside the room. Mm -hmm. Um, but I will, I will let them come in. And my one cat Lilith, she is a hunter. And so I tried tested years ago when I first got them, like putting a snake closer to her and she tried to like swat it. So I'm like, okay, this is not going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she can't be around any snakes that are like out. It's mostly my corn snakes. I'm not going to bring any big snakes out when they're around. That's right. you know, kind of not smart. That's not um, smart for either of the animals. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, um, so when I have like the corn snakes out or the babies out or something, the cats will be in the room with me. But then once I get to juveniles, they get kicked out and, you know, yell at me from the door, basically. Mm-hmm. And how many but, babies but, are you producing a year now? Well, this last year that I talked about, I, I didn't have, you know, very good luck because of so much of the mold. Mm-hmm. Um, if that wasn't the case, it probably would have been about 60 ish babies. Um, and that's wow. kind of where that's where I stay. I do. I try to do only three clutches a year. And that'll get you 60 babies ish. Um, it's like between 40 and 60. It depends on your animal. Blood pythons will actually have the least amount, but if they're a huge blood python, you're going to get like 15. Right. Um, and then the Borneos and the short tails seem to pack them in a lot more. So you get Hmm. bigger clutches with them. Yeah. What's the size of an egg generally? That's huge. It's like bigger than a chicken egg. So I'd love to talk a little bit more. So you, you know, got this first blood python when you were supposed to get a rainbow boa. Did you say you got both at the same time? Yep. I got both. Okay. So when you, um, made the transition to really focus on, almost said rainbow boas, when you really made the focus (laughs) on blood pythons, what was your journey like within the community? Did you notice any, um, any issues with like, being a woman in the hobby, being someone younger in the hobby, like how was that experience for you? Um, I haven't felt any sort of way being a woman in the hobby. And mm-hmm. I am grateful to that, that I haven't, I've been in small communities. Like I first got really into the carpet community and mm-hmm. um, they just were so welcoming and so wonderful. And I think that community really parallels a lot with the blood Python community. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I made that, and there was a lot of crossover too, within the carpet Python and blood Python community. So, right. um, that made it, you know, a little bit easier, a little bit. Um, but I networked really hardcore in the beginning and like went to the events and we did started the California carpet fest, um, with mm-hmm. my partner at the time. And now, now they're keeping it going and doing that over there. So that's cool. But like really just getting involved with the community. And so when I was like morphing into, you know, different, I just, I literally just distracted myself because I said morph. And then I was like, ha that's funny in my head. <laughs> <laughs> that's just like, oh my God. You're just keeping yourself entertained. Apparently so. um, but when I started, we'll say transitioning from you know, having, I had a lot of ball pythons. I had a lot of corn snakes. I had a lot of random stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just decided that I, instead of spending my money and really honestly, it was economical instead of spending my money and using my space on species that I didn't plan on breeding that Mm -hmm. I would only focus on, you know, if I expanded my collection, it would be the animals that I was going to use as breeding and that, you know, the species I was getting into. Um, so with that, the ball Python community is huge. And Mm -hmm. so we didn't really, I didn't really get deep into it. So when I got out of it, it wasn't, it was like no thing. Like it, you know, didn't really matter because I wasn't really in it to begin with, I guess. And then the, the only negative thing that occurred 
is when I first decided to get into the blood pythons and kind of make that big purchase type of deal, Mm -hmm. um, I got more expensive snakes and I got them from one person and that gave, a. it's kind of like when people have a lot of, and I'm not saying I have a lot of money because I don't, but when people put a lot of money up to get, you know, certain genetics and, you know, kind of get ahead a little bit, but they're completely new to a certain species. Mm -hmm. It kind of puts not necessarily the best taste in other breeders mouths when they do Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's kind of what happened to me. Mm -hmm. And I ended up actually finding when I went onto blood Python forum years later that I went onto old forums and was looking and reading and someone was talking shit about me in the forum. (laughs) Yeah. And I legit, I didn't look into whose screen name it was because I just didn't care enough, but I was like, Oh my gosh, like it got me a little (laughs) heated. I was like, I can't even believe this. I love it. You live in their head rent free. (laughs) Right. I was like, Oh my gosh. Like, really? Like, this is nuts. Mm -hmm. Well, it's good to hear that you've had like a positive experience overall. I think that's, I think you see that a lot when people get into these really like these smaller communities that they tend to be more accepting because there's so many less people, like you can't piss each other off, (laughs) you know? Right. And I mean, a good rule of thumb, and this is, I guess, like networking 101 is you kind of want to be in the background observing at first Mm -hmm. and you don't want to be that person that comes off as a Mm know-it-all and that isn't there to learn if you come in into some new community and you want to learn and you want to be a part of it and you're open ears, that is when you're going to really be accepted and people are going to, you know, really want to help you mm-hmm. when you have that kind of outlook rather than being like, oh, well, I've done it this way for years. And this, you know, this is the way I've done it. And it's great. Like you can, you can have that opinion and, and say that, but say that in a better way. And that's hard when we're on the internet most of the time. And we might say something like that and someone takes it a different way. And, you know, that's a whole yeah. other different topic (laughs) oh yeah that's that has that is so difficult because you can never really know what people are trying to say online and everything can come across so skewed right exactly exactly which is really unfortunate you know it could be a really great tool for us and it can be a a really negative tool too but yeah but if it wasn't for the internet I wouldn't know who you are (laughs) yeah you're so welcome um (laughs) no I think I think I mean, as much as we bitch and moan about Facebook, it really is one of the best ways of getting to know people in the hobby. Facebook yep. and Instagram seem to be the best, even though all the all you old folks can talk about those forums that I wasn't allowed to go on because I was like 10 years old. But uh. <laughs> I went into it only like a couple of years ago. It was very high site so yeah like, back in the days of the forums I was like I wasn't a part of that either <laughs> it's like yes uh-huh. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about but now I'm like you know I'm all those young folk with their TikToks <laughs> I love TikTok my- back <laughs> off <laughs> I gave it up for Lent uh because I was on serious? it yeah oh as I was God. on it way too much at the beginning That's of so quarantine funny. like when I lost my job I think I was clocking like six hours of TikTok a day that's crazy because I can see it (laughs) well my roommates and I were all unemployed (laughs) we were were all just finishing school online and we would sit in the living room with our headphones on and like watch a TikTok and if we thought the other person would like it we would just send it to them (laughs) (laughs) this is what you're doing from the other room just sending each other no we were in the same room we were like that's even worse (laughs) 
that's it's funny. So fun. Oh my gosh. I will I'm say like, that there are, there are some decent, even reptile TikToks, you know, accounts yeah, out there. So there's cool. some really good ones and there's some really shitty ones. <laughs> I bet. Really shitty ones. Um, but speaking of such, speaking of good media. So I know that you've more recently started a YouTube channel. Is that correct? I did back in January, I believe is yeah. when I did it. And how's that like, going? Oh, I haven't posted in so long. <laughs> that's so that's okay. No, I mean, that's okay. So what was, why did you want to start a, uh, a YouTube channel? What was your purpose? I felt a little bit twofolded. I feel like, um, females are not showcasing the hobby enough. Mm-hmm. Um, really, and- really? I, I wasn't aware. <laughs> Maybe I should do something. About I am that. preaching to the choir right <laughs> here on that, but you know, like I, I just feel like women need more of a presence in this hobby and, mm-hmm. and not one that's based off of like breast hanging out and objectifying yourself to get attention for the animals. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I wanted to really just be like an educational type mm-hmm. of YouTube channel. Um, right. and then I also, on the other side of things, I wanted to showcase the short tails. I want it to be very short tail specific mm-hmm. because there's not a lot of content on YouTube specifically about short tails themselves. Mm-hmm. Now there's content there, but it's not like where you can get one channel. That's only short tail stuff. Um, so that is what I decided to go ahead and do. So, yeah. And so what kind of videos have you put out so far? Um, I have put out a, most of it is going to be like how to videos. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a whole video on cleaning my entire snake room and you can watch me from start to finish cleaning my entire snake room. Um, I, it's so funny because I love watching those videos, but I hate to do it myself. I don't know why. Yes, I know. <laughs> that's that's going to be my night tonight. I think part of it anyway. Yeah. But, I've got to build new cages. So yeah, I'll be right there with you, sis. <laughs> yep. I, I did one of those. Um, I did how to give a snake an injection since I had, you know, mm-hmm. going through that, that with her. Um, mm-hmm. what else have I done? I think I've done, um, different, uh, housing that you can do for the, mm-hmm. for the blood, blood pythons. I have one recorded for when to know when to put your short tail into a bigger enclosure. So that one is coming. Um, I did the update on my snake, uh, the different, I did a mite treatment video, um, because I preach use frontline for your mites. Right. Um, like I love that stuff, man. Um, but I did that. And then what else did I do? So um, I think I did like, husbandry yeah you did some like how to take some pictures of your snakes which is really interesting because i think that's something that a lot of people don't really know how to do because it can be really hard to take good pictures of your snakes i'm lucky my snakes just sit on a stick all day long which is why they're always pictures of the green trees and not any of my other animals (laughs) (laughs) i have an issue like i can't i haven't figured out how to get pictures of my adults that are like more professional like because mm-hmm. they're so big, I can't find like a background that's suitable for their size. Mm-hmm. So still working on that. But with babies, I have that up there. So, I mean, really, it's just anything in my day to day, like reptile keeping. And then if there's something new, like when I was upgrading all my snakes into bigger enclosures, I'm like, well, that might be something good for people to see too. So, you know, I do that. Or what size food do you like, does your animal need? And I'll do that. I, videotaped what an ovulation looks like mind you these are all things I need to edit and put up but <laughs> but you have it stuff. but <laughs> I you're, have you're it. ready mm-hmm. that's the kind of stuff that um I'm putting up just because you get questions all the time you know people slide into your dm and ask you random questions about what you would do in these situations and I try to take those questions and I'm like, well, if you had that question, I'm sure more people have this question. Yeah. And, and I think it's nice to have a, a place to look instead of having to 
bother people again and again, or, you know, have to search through all the messages to say, what did she say two months ago about this? Right. Yeah. So, so it's fun. I like it. I like doing it. Like I said, I've been consumed with work a little bit, so I haven't gotten the balance of, you know, being able to edit the videos. It's one thing to videotape a video. It's another to edit it and then get it uploaded and get all the tags and get the thumbnail. Like, (laughs) yeah, it's a thing. It takes a lot of time. It does take a lot of time, especially if you have like any sort of pride in what you're putting out there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess, I guess that's unfair for me to say that if you have pride in what you're doing, if you, if you care what it looks like in the end, um, some people, you know, are just going to videotape it and put it up and that's it. And that's what they're going to do. Cool. I'm not even saying anything negative about that. I'm just saying, if you want to put a little bit more finishing touches on it, it's going to take time Mm -hmm. and, and that I just haven't had. So I'm sorry to anyone that has watched my channels and waiting for something I'm slacking <laughs> well I really liked your channel so don't even worry about it um, <laughs> so, taking a step back I want to discuss you mentioned earlier that you're really focused on bringing in animals that have good genetics and that things that you would be happy to breed in the future and that it's specifically been the short tails and the bloods for now are there any other species that you're looking to get into or you would really like to give a stab at breeding not really, honestly. Um, yeah. I feel like I'm balancing a lot of stuff with life things plus the hobby that mm-hmm. learning a totally new species and doing them justice with their setup and, and, you know, husbandry and all that. Mm-hmm. I, I just honestly don't want to have to put in the mind, the mental effort <laughs> into yeah. getting that going and doing that. So Mm -hmm. I really don't have a desire to breed more. What I will say though, is that I already have like corn snakes that, Mm -hmm. um, I have bred and I might breed them a couple more times. Mm -hmm. I know what I'm getting into for that. Mm -hmm. Um, I breed barking geckos. I keep a pair together. So cute. (laughs) They're so funny and so silly. Um, but I love them and they're kind of like the, I think everyone should have like a little fun side project too. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what those are for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I love them and I have some tarantulas that I do not care to breed what whatsoever. They are just to keep. Um, yeah. Tarantula ble- breeding scares me. <laughs> yeah, that's so There's many. so many. <laughs> no. <laughs> You're like, you thought 60 babies was a lot. That's just, yeah. You know. How do you even keep track? I don't know. I mean, I love those people because I do love tarantulas and I like having some of them. So right. Ev- we need those people, but I am not that person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, and I, I have some, some micro geckos too, and they breed, but the babies are so tiny that I can never find them and, or the adults eat them. I can't figure it out, but I, I'm not successful with keeping them and getting them to adulthood. So yeah, <laughs> there's that. <laughs> um, so are there any species that you would just like to have and not breed? Yes. Um, the, the Papuan Python, not like, um, like not IJ Papuan, but, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, those, I was able to, my friend had a pair of them and I was able to interact with their larger male Mm -hmm. and they are just so cool. And their head shape is just so different. That's, that would be like my dream snake, but that's another thing where like, they would need like a six to eight foot cage Mm -hmm. and it's a lot of space and a lot of bandwidth that right now I would rather, you know, put to my short tails, not to be, you know, on repeat here, but no, I mean, it's like I said earlier, it's good to know your limits and it's, it's good to know that you kind of have like a plan in mind <laughs> for what you're yeah, doing with your I'm collection. Yeah. Ex- 
extremely focused, I guess, mm-hmm. is where I'm at right now. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's great. I think it's very admirable for me looking at you as, as someone I look up to in the hobby, you know, um, I think it's, it's a good, you're a good role model for myself and then other girls in the hobby. And actually my next question was going to be about that. So you speak a lot about how you want to engage more women in the hobby and make sure that it's like a good place for women to be. What is your like tips to girls who are looking to get into herps or want to get started with snakes or sometimes these bigger snakes, but maybe are are nervous on how to do that? I mean, for one, it would be like, just do it for one, (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, and I didn't have the negative experience with men and being actually the only thing I had, um, was when Terrell and I were partnered anytime Mm -hmm. that they were speaking to me, they always assumed I was a man. So I guess I did have that. Um, but I mean, just keep going and don't, I guess there's like a limit to, I want to say my original statement is don't take it too personally, but I know there are lines to that and there are limits to that. Mm -hmm. Um, but to move on from it, and don't let it bring you down, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. and don't let it stop you from being, you know, keeping the animals because ultimately it is your home. And if you don't go online or don't go to the other, you know, shows and stuff, if we ever get those back fully, mm-hmm. you know, it's you and that animal. So, right. you know, it, it's not, it's, it's much more focused than that. And, and I don't want any woman to not do it just because some man was snarky or crossed the lines with harassment or something like that, you know, Mm -hmm. um, because people are, you know, some women and men are phenomenal keepers and, you know, let them keep. (laughs) So Uh to to not, not give up if you have a bad experience and to really look for those positive groups and those positive mentors that you can, you know, male or female that you can really learn from Mm -hmm. and and be around. So yeah, that, that I guess would be, and maybe that's harder done, you know, than said, but no, I think it's, I think it's, it's reassuring to hear people say those things, even if it's sounds like it's repetitive, you know, you have to hear it a million times. And I mean, you have your group. I'll, I'll give you a shout out for that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You know, having all, all female Facebook group and where it's positive, you know, there's not a lot of, I don't see a lot of negativity anyway on there. Mm -hmm. Um, having that and knowing, you know, having that concentrated female group to be like, oh yeah, I had this experience too. And this is how I dealt with it. And it's just a different perspective on things. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, using, you can use that group and say, Hey, I'm into this species. Do you know, other women that are into this species and who I can, you know, use as mentors or friends or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know where I was going with that, but do that. I mean, it leads me, it leads me into my next question. So you speak, um, very highly and you, you speak often about your mentor. Can you talk more about your relationship with them and and how you managed to find one that you have so much respect and, you know, trust in? I have like, honestly, like 10 different mentors. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's not like any one specific person Mm -hmm. and it's really, anyone in the hobby that has been doing it longer that I have respect for really. Mm-hmm. Like, even if you, if you listen to podcasts of people like Eric Burke, for one, I mean, he's my friend and I can go to him if I need to, but just even listening to his podcast is a, a type of mentorship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, you're not directly interacting with them, but you're getting their knowledge and getting how they view things. Um, and, and learning from that. So you have that as a mentorship, you have direct one-on-one 
which really honestly starts as friendship. And I've learned, and this sounds kind of, kind of weird, but when you buy animals from people, it's part of me back in the day, kind of bought certain animals from certain people because I knew I would build a mentorship through that. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. when you buy an animal from a breeder, you tend to buy part of their knowledge and everything too, if you have problems. Right. You know, and then have that conversation and, and part of you spending that money is buying part of their time, Mm -hmm. you know, and, Mm -hmm. and they'll put extra time into you and will help you more. And then you can build the, like a true friendship and a true mentorship. But I, you know, I suggest honestly, if I'm being very honest, suggesting buying from a top breeder that you respect, because then you're going to be buying part of their time. Mm -hmm. You know, go ahead, go ahead. No, you I, go ahead. Sorry. We keep it's, it's hard when you don't have the video. Cause I can't I tell when you're talking. <laughs> so I was going to ask, how do you, um, how do you have that relationship with people who have bought animals from you? I try to, to be as one transparent with them. And when they hit me up with anything, when they call me anything, I try to be there to answer them. And mm-hmm. if I don't know the answer to be able to send them to someone mm-hmm. that I know and trust that has the answer. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's what, that's kind of how, you know, on the flip side, that buying an animal from someone, because, okay, let me go at it from a different way. If you're at a show and you have someone who is asking you all of these questions and loves your animals and had a great conversation, and then they go, they buy an animal from a flipper for $60 and they come back to you and they say, okay, so now what do I do? You're like, are you serious? Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, did you spend all that time with me? And it's not like, it's not like you necessarily really care about the sale or care. You don't necessarily really care about it. It's like the principle of the whole thing. Oh yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And so, so with that, you know, I'll answer questions from anyone. I'm in the mentorship program with blood Python. So if you want me as your mentor, you can go to that and sign up for that and we can do that. Um, but you know, just being there for the people that genuinely want to know and genuinely have questions and also are open to criticism and open to doing things a little bit different if what they're doing isn't working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and just, just trying to be there for them for that. And just tweaking things. A lot of stuff is just tweaking and, and helping. And, you know, if they need a second opinion on something, just, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, getting to the end of chatting with you, cause I can't believe how fast time's gone. I know. Um, what do you have planned for this year? Like what kind of animals are you looking at? What, uh, what pairings do you have going on? Alrighty. So I have <laughs> pull out the spreadsheet. Yeah, I know. Right. I only have three animals that I have paired up mm-hmm. and, um, I, my ivory and my T negative produced matrix, uh, T negative matrix, both visual. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that the market right now doesn't have a lot of ivories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm like, well, I can go ahead and put, you know, the siblings together and see what comes of that. And then I'll have some ivories and also my ivory was sick at the time. So I was thinking if I need a replacement for her that, you know, maybe I should make these also. Right. Um, so like, you know, just being realistic about the situation, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I paired those together and it just does not seem like the female took. So I do not think, I do not have high hopes for that pairing whatsoever, but okay. I did pair them. Um, I put a golden eye het T negative to a batik uh, het T negative. Mm-hmm. So that the like ultimate thing to get out of that is a T negative pixel. And that is like what I really, really want. And what does that look like? 
Oh, right on time. You got it. Right. <laughs> if, if you, it's hard to describe a golden eye, but if you look up a golden eye, um, the sides of it gets more pixelated. When, okay. And that, I mean, that's why they call it a pixel, I guess. That but. would make sense. Yeah. <laughs> I like how a lot of these breeds are not breeds. Oh my God. A lot of these morphs are so to the point. <laughs> I know. Right. Yeah. Like, it's, oh, it's pixel. pixel. Yeah. Yeah. It just looks like it's pixelated. Oh, okay. Good. Well, then we that. also have, we have uh, a newer, I say it's what, like maybe four years ago, someone made a white lightning. So, I mean, you have off the wall things too. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I have that. That's what I'm hoping for. And I know not everyone can afford an animal like that, which is why I do pairings of heads to heads. Mm -hmm. And both of them are codom in the thinking that I will get a variety Mm -hmm. of different types of animals that would be at a variety of different types of prices. So that way people that want to get into a beginner snake, they have that option. And then, you know, also have higher grades of different, um, you know, genetic variability and whatnot. So that's kind of my, my thought process to, to that one, but I really, really want that T negative pixel and if there's only one I'm keeping it <laughs> I think that's awesome I think I, I like the idea that you're I think that breeding animals for every price point is like a very cool idea because I know for me personally like I just I got into the hobby when I was still in college and it was so hard to get nice animals and to be able to afford it yeah so a lot yeah. of what I have is I've got a couple projects that I'm just growing because I couldn't afford an adult and I couldn't afford the actual visual animal I had. So I've got like four, uh, four ball pythons that are all recessive. And I'm like, all right, let's hope I can get there eventually because I, I couldn't right. afford it at the time. So yeah, I think, exactly. yep. I think that definitely helps make the hobby a lot more accessible. Yeah. So, I mean, and I also, I, if I'm at a show and I have a table and I'm only doing three clutches and they all are the same, they all look exactly the same. Like that's kind of boring. So as a business standpoint, having more variability is probably better. Yeah, um, definitely helps. And then I have my darkest of dark Sumatrans that came from that collection that had Nido. Mm -hmm. um, she, she survived all that nonsense. And, mm -hmm. um, oh wait, I didn't pair. I paired her last year. Never mind. I paired Jewel, um, who is my, we call it a jetling. So Lon mm -hmm. Dixler bought a black Sumatran short tail off of Craigslist mm -hmm. and it is this darkest of dark snake and he bred it to another dark, dark Sumatran that he had. And so I have, um, I have Jewel and then I have her half brother named Jem and mm -hmm. I have finally, that project has matured and I have finally been able to put them together and, uh, Jewel has blown up and she looks so freaking big and fat that if she doesn't have eggs upon eggs upon eggs in her. I don't know what I did wrong or what I'm feeding her <laughs> because she is huge. Okay. Um, so that's exciting for that. So I'll have, um, the dark Sumatrans and then I'll have possible pixels and maybe ivories mixed up in there. So awesome. Awesome. Well, that all sounds really exciting. Um, I really appreciate you taking your time to come chat with me today on this. It's, it's gorgeous here in Cincinnati. I don't know where you are, but this gorgeous Sunday, it are is you, gorgeous here too. Yeah, it is beautiful. Yeah, so I'll let you go so we can get a little bit more sunshine and I got to finish yes. potting. Got to finish <laughs> potting that plant that's currently sitting unpotted yep, on I'm my go couch. Work in my yard too. Yep. <laughs> I love um, how reptile people are also like low key plant people. I swear. Okay, I was just <laughs> talking to I was, I was I was talking to um to Billy about this about yeah. how I 
want to do a snakes and stogies the one that justin smith and and phil wolf do together yeah Billy hunts and i were like we should do a snakes and stogies but we just talk about plants yes and <laughs> but- tell me when that happens so i can tune in live thank you <laughs> well justin and, and phil would just roll their eyes because I, I love plants um it's becoming a problem because they're a lot easier to buy than reptiles, but I've started to get into the plants that are hella expensive. Oh, like, you, 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 you leveled up is what you did. Yeah. And it's problematic. <laughs> I brought home a monstera yesterday that has to be five feet tall. I do not have space in my one bedroom apartment for a five foot monstera. And I have a cat that eats plants. Like I'm fucked. Mine eats plants too. I have this problem too. (laughs) She she eats plants and then she pukes on my bed. And I'm like, thank you so much for that plant back. I really appreciated it. Cannot propagate that. Um, (laughs) Okay. On that really gross note. Yeah. um, (laughs) Well, uh, April, I really appreciate you coming and chatting with me today. Can you kind of give us the rundown of where everyone can find you? All right. Yeah. You can find me at bloodsbydesign.com. Um, you can email me at bloodsbydesign at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram, bloodsbydesign, or on YouTube and also on Facebook, all bloodsbydesign. Awesome. And I'll make sure to uh, tag you in all of the comments wherever this is posted. Um, awesome. Once again, everyone, this is your host, Dominique. You can find me at DeFalco Reptiles on Facebook and Instagram, or you can find the podcast at Modern Medusa Podcast on Instagram. And I want to give a huge thank you to Joe with Port City Pet for always being so supportive and hosting this podcast on his platform. So you can find him on Facebook and Instagram at Port City Pet. So once again, April, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking with you and we will talk with all of you guys next week. Thank you.